Okay. Remember that Charles Dickens line? It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. <laughs> well, this particular um, study tonight, we're going to be looking at um, Genesis 38 and 39. And we're going to get the best of some of the, uh, uh, the best of an individual in the, in the overall patriarchal family and the worst uh, in these two chapters. And we're going to look at the worst first. <laughs> we're going to be in chapter 38. And, um, well, let's just pick it up. It came to pass at that time that Judah departed from his brothers. And we get the sense, by the way, that they're talking about he's now departed from his brothers after they have just now sold their brother Joseph into slavery uh, to Egypt. So Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. And Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. Now Shua is the name of the Canaanite and the daughter of Shua is who he's looking at. And he married her and went into her. So she conceived and bore a son and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. And she conceived yet again and bore a son and called his name Shelah. He was, uh, he was at Kizib when she bore him. Then Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord killed him. And Judah said to Onan, go in to your brother's wife and marry her and raise up an heir to your brother. But Onan knew that he, the heir would not be his. And it came to pass when he went into his brother's wife that he omitted on the ground lest he should give an heir to his brother. And the thing which he did displeased the Lord. Therefore, he killed him also. Let's stop there. This is very chilling, <laughs> very disturbing. Um, so we get the account here of Judah finding his wife. The wife's name, oddly, is not given. Her mother's name is given, Shua. And um, the first thing we notice there in verse 2 is that she's a Canaanite. And of course, the family of Jacob, and even going back even to Abraham's time, the clear counsel of God was not to be intermarrying with the Canaanite people. And yet, here is Judah doing that. Now, we already saw what happened previously with, with um, Dinah, uh, the daughter of Jacob, and her escapade with Shechem, and how the brothers reacted to this man who is also a Canaanite, who had raped his, their sister. And yet here's a Judah now fraternizing with the Canaanites and actually taking a wife. And this, this always results in, in a bad result for God's people. When God's people intermarry with people who are not of the same uh, mind and heart relative to God, it usually results in catastrophe. And this is true even now as the church, 
the advice, the counsel that Paul includes in the word of God is that we are not to be unequally yoked. And this is, this is not a sense of chauvinism or, or uh, bigotry or uh, discrimination. It is, it is something that God desires for us for, this, for the sake of being of one mind and one heart as we serve God. And so this becomes something that I think uh, is a blight in the life of Judah. And as he starts to sire sons, we see how the problem starts to expand from that point at which he marries the daughter of Shua. Because he's given a firstborn son, his name is Ur, and then the second son, Onan, and then the third son we'll, we'll get to in a moment here. But uh, we read that in verse 6 that Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn son, and her name was Tamar. And uh, Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord killed him. Now, that's a pretty troubling verse right there. We don't get any commentary as to what wickedness Ur was guilty of or, or why his existence was offensive enough to the Lord that the Lord took him off the face of the earth. But given the moral laxity that we saw and see that developed among the sons of Jacob and the fact that the mother of Ur is a Canaanite, you know, you could, you could start to imagine some of the things that, that could have gotten into the life of this guy Ur who as he grew grew with the wrong orientation perhaps the wrong moral compass we might say that he made an error and the Lord took <laughs> took him out sorry couldn't resist <laughs> he made some kind of error and uh, the Lord took him out and uh, and so what we find here is that Judah tells his brother the next in line Onan Go into your brother's wife and marry her and raise up an heir to your brother. But Onan knew that the heir would not be his. And it came to pass when he went into his brother's wife that he admitted on the ground lest he should give an heir to his brother. Now, what we see here is kind of the precursor of leveret marriage that the Mosaic law would specify many years later like over 400 years later when the law is given. But the idea of preserving a dead brother's name and also his inheritance or his land was important even before the people of Israel left Egypt and came back into the land to take their inheritance from the Lord. Uh, this was something that was practiced by people uh, Middle Eastern people or Near Eastern people, uh, this idea of uninterrupted passing of the right to land and property from a father to a son and all that, this was a very important concept for them. And it ultimately would be codified in the Mosaic Law. In fact, just so that you see how it's rendered there, uh, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 25. And in uh, between verses 5 and 10, we read, If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, 
The widow of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside the family. Her husband's brother shall go into her, take her as his wife, and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And it shall be that the firstborn son which she bears will succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted, blotted out of Israel. By the way, verse 7 kind of, or I'm sorry, verse 5 kind of gives us the impression when it speaks of and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her, that it was already something that was in the mindset of people and perhaps even already practiced. And, and now the Lord is codifying it in law. And verse 6, and it shall be that the firstborn son which she bears will succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. Again, the Lord is making sure that the allotments, the, the uh, giving of the land to each of the tribes and each of the clans and each of the families would remain where the Lord gave it and would pass down accordingly. Now notice how serious the Lord has made this particular command because there's a real sanction involved in not going along with it. Verse 7 says, But if the man does not want to take his brother's wife, then let his brother's wife go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to raise up a name to his brother in Israel. He will not perform the duty of my husband's brother. Then the elders of, this, of his city shall call him and speak to him. But if he stands firm and says, I do not want to take her, then his brother's wife shall come to him in the presence of the elders, remove his sandal from his foot, spit in his face, and answer and say, so shall it be done to this man who will not build up his brother's house. And his name shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal removed. Which apparently was a very disgraceful thing to happen. It was, by the way, shortly after this time that high-top army boots came into fashion. That had, I'm just kidding. But, but this, is, this is something that was dear to the Lord. Uh, another aspect of it, not only was it important by virtue of the passage of property and the passage of name, which meant a lot, but it also protected the, the widow because a husband and children were pretty much her social security, if you will. A woman who had no husband and had no children was, was in a lot of jeopardy, a lot of trouble because she had no support as she ages or just, just even make a living to, to keep herself going would be a super challenge for just that woman to have to work to support herself and, and all of that. So this was a way in which the interests of the widow could be protected. The interests of the family line could be preserved. And this is what uh, Judah, even before the law was given, this is what Judah commanded to his second son, Onan. He said, look, uh, your brother has died. He died without a child. Um, you need to go into your brother's wife. You need to carry on his name. Give, her an, give him, rather, an heir, a son, who will then take on... Uh, the name of Er, not, not Onan. Uh, it would be just as if his brother sired that, that child with, with the wife, Tamar. But Onan, we see, um, has what we might call a selfish heart. He doesn't want to sire an heir that won't be his. And so we read there that he emitted on the ground, which is to say uh, he used that ancient form of birth control and withdrew before he was able to... Uh, 
inseminate his, his uh, well, Tamar, the wife of his brother. And, uh, and this was highly displeasing to the Lord because we see there in verse 10, this thing which he did displeased the Lord, therefore he killed him also. Now, just to point out, and perhaps you know this, but I'll just mention it. There, there is perhaps a misunderstanding of what the Lord is reacting to here. Uh, many read this passage and use it as a proof text uh, that it is a sin to emit seed that is not uh, emitted for the purpose of procreation or that it, the, the sin of Onan is, is akin to masturbation or something like that. In fact, Onanism was a term that then was used as a synonym for masturbation. And this is not what the Lord is reacting to. I mean, aside as to sinfulness of any of those activities, what the Lord is reacting to here is the selfish heart of Onan to not honor his brother, not help this widow, not obey the command of his father and this is something that was important enough that the, the Lord actually would include it in the law in, in years in the future. So um, again, that particular episode is often used incorrectly uh, as far as what the Lord is actually punishing here. Now <clears throat> the story continues and, and actually gets more troublesome because then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till my son Shelah is grown. For he said, lest he also die like his brothers. And Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. Now, we don't know. Maybe Judah thought, boy, Tamar is a pretty lethal cook. And I don't want my uh, youngest son to have to go into that house and die too. But he tells Tamar, um, look, Shelah is, is just a, a puppy. Uh, let him grow up to be a man. And then... He will fulfill the leveret duty of his brother Ur. And uh, what proceeds from that point, and, and let me just add also that at the point at which we saw there in verse 6 that Judah took a wife for Ur and his firstborn, and her name was Tamar, the sense we get is that the dowry situation was handled by Judah. He procured this wife for his son she then becomes under the authority of judah's household and in a real sense then under the authority of judah so it's not like she could just say oh well you know the family of judah let me down i'm, I'm gonna make myself available to another husband uh, this would not be done first of all because she was the wife of another man uh, and then was with his brother um, her desirability as, as somebody that another man outside of Judah's family is going to receive as his wife diminished rather significantly. And then there's the issue of being under that authority that Judah now is entitled to because of the relationship that he struck with her father originally to be with the oldest brother. And so when Judah tells her, go back to your father's house and live under his roof until uh, my youngest, Sheila, is grown, that's something she had to comply with. Um, but we read in verse 12, now in the process of time, the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, died. And Judah was comforted and went up to his sheep shearers at Timnah, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. So now we read in verse 12 that this woman that 
He married, which we saw at the very beginning of chapter 38. She dies, and, and he grieves for her. And then uh, after that, he's comforted, and he goes to shear his sheep at Timnah, which was, you know, a job, but it was also kind of a social thing for guys. When they went to shear the sheep, they probably had good fellowship when they were together. And in verse 13, it was told Tamar saying, look, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she took off her widow's garments, covered herself with a veil and wrapped herself and sat in an open place which was on the way to Timnah. For she saw that Sheila was grown and she was not given to him as wife. So what we get the impression of, and we're, we're not given a lot of detail, but the circumstances that are evident to Tamar are telling her clearly that Judah is not going to deliver on his promise of providing his third son to perform the leveret duty uh, that is due her based upon the practice of the time. And, uh, and so she, she realizes that this is kind of an existential moment for her if Sheila is not going to come to give her an heir, she's going to go without. Her chances of becoming someone else's wife are limited at best. And so she comes up with a plan that will allow her, in a very devious way, to solve these issues. So she pretty much... Um, wraps herself up to look like a harlot on the road to Timnah. Verse 15, when Judah saw her, he sees her sitting by the road, which is something that a harlot would do. A respectable woman wouldn't just hang out by the side of the road. Um, and so he saw her. He thought she was a harlot because she had covered her face. Then he turned to her by the way and said, please let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. So she said, what will you give me that you may come into me? And let me just point out, the law had not been given yet, right? So there's all kinds of prescription against uh, lying with women that are not your wife, lying with women who are harlots in the law. Now, there may have been a, a practice of not doing that. I suspect there was in this time. But the sense you get is, at least from Judah's standpoint, he doesn't see this as such a big deal, nor does his friend that's going to help him in a few verses hence. Um, but he, he sees her, he propositions her, and like a good businesswoman, she says, what will you give me that you may come into me? And he said, I will send a young goat from the flock. So she said, will you give me a pledge till you send it? So again, she's a good businesswoman. It's like, okay, I have your promise, but I want collateral for your promise. And she probably went into banking after this. Um, and uh, so she said he said rather what pledge shall I give you I said well what would you like and she said your signet this would be a ring or some piece of jewelry that would have his special insignia on it it would be something that he might use to, to enter into a, a contractual arrangement or something um, it was something that identified him and his family so your signet and cord and your staff that is in your hand. And that probably was something that was distinctive. It may have been carved in a certain way that anyone who saw it and knew Judah would know that's his. 
And she, this is all very deliberate. She wants to make sure that the collateral she receives is very easily identifiable as belonging to Judah. Um, then he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. So she arose and went away and laid aside her veil and put on the garments of her widowhood. And Judah sent the young goat by the hand of his friend, the Adulamite, to receive his pledge from the woman's hand. But he, that would be the Adulamite, did not find her. Then he asked the men of that place, saying, Where is the harlot who is openly by the roadside? And they said, There's no harlot in this place. So he returned to Judah and said, I cannot find her. Also the men of the place said there was no harlot in this place. Then Judah said, let her take them for herself, lest we be shamed. For I sent the young goat and you have not found her. So now Judah realizes that um, the potential for his undoing is afoot. He's concerned. He doesn't want to make too big a deal of going and searching out these items that he left as collateral because it could expose him as the one who went into this woman, this harlot. So he does have some shame about what he did, um, maybe because it's shortly after his wife had passed and, and the optics of it are all wrong or whatever. But he realizes, look, let's not, let's not press this. Uh, and it came to pass about three months after that Judah was told, saying, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has played the harlot. Furthermore, she is with child by harlotry. So Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. It's amazing how people who have fallen into sin themselves are usually the loudest and first voice to condemn somebody else. Um, just like when, <laughs> when the prophet Nathan confronted David about his sin and he did it through this story that he told about a man, poor man who only had one little lamb that was part of the family and the rich man that took it for a meal. And David was... You know, he should burn, he should this, he should that. And of course, Nathan said, thou art the man. And a thou art the man moment is about to happen here. Bring her out, let her be burned. And when she was brought out, she sent to her father-in-law saying, by the man to whom these belong, I am with child. And she said, please determine whose these are, the signet, the cord, and staff. Checkmate. <laughs> so Judah acknowledged them and, she, and said, she has been more righteous than I because I did not give her to Shelah, my son, and he never knew her again. Now, when we see that phrase, he never knew her again, the sense you get is that because now she's with child and they are his child, she becomes part of his household. But after that first foray, when he thought she was a harlot, he never has intimacy with her again. So he has her in name only. Uh, he does not take her as wife in terms of the, the uh, intimacy interchange between husband and wife. Um, and we read in verse 27, now it came to pass at the time for giving birth that behold, twins were in her womb. This sounds familiar. Um, Here's Judah now. He's living under the cloud of this unfortunate series of events. Uh, and, you know, what Tamar had told him about you determine who this is, it kind of smacks, brings to memory Numbers 32, 23. 
But if you do not do so, then take note, you're sinned. You have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. And this is less, that if you read the context of that particular verse, it's less about the fact that your sin will all of a sudden be known to everybody in the world, although it might be. It's more that your sin finds you out. It, it brings back to your notice what you did and the consequences of what you did. And he now knows that, okay, now I've got uh, a pregnant woman who's carrying my, he initially thought, my child. Now it turns out to be twins. And so it was when she was giving birth that the one put out his hand and the midwife took a scarlet thread and bound it on his hand saying, this one came out first. Then it happened as he drew back his hand that his brother came out unexpectedly. And she said, how did you break through? This breach be upon you. Therefore, his name was called Perez, which basically means uh, breakthrough or breach. Afterward, his brother came out who had the scarlet thread and on his hand, and his name was called Zira, which means scarlet. And this, this kind of mirrors this birth of Perez and Zira mirrors what happened with Jacob and Esau, doesn't it? And how the younger son ends up ruling over the older son. And it's interesting also that Judah was one of the, the brothers who was on board with the idea of killing Joseph first and then selling him into slavery so they could make a little money on the deal, presumably as a means by which he could thwart what seemed to be Joseph's vision and Joseph's plan that he would ultimately rule over his brothers. Now, what Judah and his brothers may not have realized at that time, although it seems that Jacob did, was that that was a vision from the Lord. That was a prophetic announcement, if you will, of the future situation among these brothers where Joseph will indeed reign and rule over his brothers. And so it's, it's ironic, it's, it's divine irony that uh, this, this theme of the younger serving the older, which was the case with Jacob, Judah's father, and his uncle Esau, is then played out here. And it, and it, it is kind of like the Lord making clear to, well, we would think to Judah, that this idea of um, resisting the younger ruling over the older by trying to do away with his brother Joseph, you, you, can't, you can't thwart God's will. You can't frustrate God's will. This is one of the great comforts we get when we're dealing with the affairs of men, whether it's election cycles or battles on the battlefield or whatever. What we know is that what God has told us will come to pass. He hasn't told us everything, but he's told us a lot. And one of the things he's told us is our ultimate destiny, the ultimate uh, outcome of, of the struggle that is human life on the earth, the ultimate uh, resolution to sin, the sins, the transgressions, the unrighteousness of the world in which we live. The Lord has spelled out how that all comes to a conclusion under the rule of Jesus Christ. And so when we see things in our immediate present or immediate future and we, we stress about them, 
Please never think that, oh my gosh, if that happens, everything that we know about what the Lord has told us will not come to pass. The Lord has these great and amazing ways to make them, to make all things uh, come out for our good in his glory. So now we move into chapter 39, and the scene shifts now from Judah so that we get this understanding that, wow, um, through these crazy sequence of events, we're Judah ends up impregnating his daughter-in-law because he lied to her. And then she has twins where the younger brother is ultimately going to be over the, the older brother. Um, all of this is, is really pieces in the puzzle of the Lord's building that highway of the seed that ultimately will be Jesus Christ. And you'll see Tamar and Perez in the lineage of Jesus Christ that you find in the Gospels. So now the scene shifts back to Joseph, who will be the one that preserves the highway of the seed, ultimately. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he was a successful man. He was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. So what we see right off the bat, and it's really just stated in one verse, summary fashion, that Joseph immediately comes into the house of Potiphar and he just rises in the ranks of the servants. Ultimately, he becomes the chief steward of the house. The Lord is prospering him. He's a man of gifting. He's, he's a man of a godly spirit. And it becomes evident even to a man like Potiphar, who guaranteed is a... Um, is a, uh, a pagan, and his name Potiphar even means devoted to the sun, and we know the Egyptians had a keen worship for the sun god and all that related to that. And yet, uh, because the Lord is being lived out before Potiphar in the life of Joseph, Potiphar is, is elevating Joseph. It says there in verse 3, and his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord made all that he did prosper in his hand. This is something that we all should aspire to. Um, that people would see something in our life that they find good, reliable, trustworthy. And they should know, because they know you, that you live for Jesus Christ. And that the things that you do, whether it's in their employ or whatever it is, you do for the glory of God. The New Testament is packed with that kind of instruction to us. We just saw it uh, in Colossians 3.17. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That was echoed in 1 Corinthians 10.31. Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 16, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And we kind of see some glory being given to God in heaven because of Joseph's excellence in verse 3. It says, his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord made all he did to prosper in his hand. So here's a man, Joseph, who is doing all that he does to glorify God and it's being acknowledged by a man who certainly is not a follower of the true and living God. So Joseph found favor in his sight and served him. Then he made him overseer of his house 
And all that he had, he put under his authority. So it was from the time that he had made him overseer of his house and all that he had, that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. And the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and in the field. This is kind of echoing uh, the same situation with Jacob in the household of Laban. Laban was a very devious, evil man, basically. And yet, because Jacob was in charge of his herds and whatnot, he, he, Laban's house was prospered because Jacob was in the midst of it. And thus he left all that he had in Joseph's hand and did not know what he had except for the bread which he ate. Now, jo- Joseph was, a handsome, was handsome in form and appearance. Um, you know, what we're, what we're hearing here concerning Joseph is what Proverbs 16, 7 tells us. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. So trusting was Potiphar of Joseph because of the integrity that Joseph exhibited that Potiphar just turned everything over to Joseph. He didn't even know what he owned after a while. Um, He so trusted Joseph that he knew that whatever was there, Joseph would not only protect it, but he would also increase it. He would would take the wealth of the house of Potiphar and he would protect the assets and grow uh, the principal. And, and then they toss in that he was handsome in form and appearance. And, uh, you know, I think Joseph is one of um, only two men in the Bible that are described as being handsome like that. I think the other two are David and Absalom, who are described physically as being attractive. Uh, in contrast, Jesus was basically described in Isaiah 53 as had no form or appearance that anyone would desire him. In other words, he didn't turn heads for his good looks, right? Uh, but this was something that is added in about Joseph was that he's just one of those people that you look at him, you say, there goes a winner. You know, he, he's pleasing to look at and believe, believe it or not, that, that removes a lot of barriers that people have to dealing with other people. If they find them physically appealing, um, there's favor there. I'm not saying it rules the day, although in some people it, probably does but there's there's favor there but his physical appearance was the least of his noteworthy attributes it's his excellence it's his integrity that really captured um, Potiphar's attention now the story starts to head downhill verse 7 came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast longing eyes on Joseph and she said lie with me Now, there are some out there who surmise that Potiphar, being a crucial officer in the the household of the pharaoh, was a eunuch. And they therefore look to the lust of Potiphar's wife as she needs release or something like that. There's nothing in the text that tells us that. Uh, There's, I mean, I would always advise don't bring things into the text that aren't there. Uh, you can have your own uh, theories and whatnot, but you can't teach that because it's just not here. Uh, for whatever reason, may- maybe whether he was a eunuch or not, they didn't have the greatest of relationships. And so she sees this handsome man in her house, a very capable man, and she gets a big idea. She says, lie with me. 
But he refused and said to his master's wife, look, my master does not know what is with me in the house and he has committed all that he has to my hand. There is no one greater in this house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me but you because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Now here, and this is why I say that, uh, you know, best of times, worst of times, Judah, we already saw some of the worst of times. Here is a best of times moment because what we see, first of all, is that Joseph sees this proposition as being injurious to his master. And this is something very often that when people get tempted or drawn into sin, they are very focused on themselves. What does this mean for me? What will this satisfy for me? What are my risks of getting caught or having a downside to this grand idea that I have? What they don't often see is how what they're about to do will affect other people in their life. How will it affect friends, employers, family members? If I go down this road, what does it mean for them? But there's something that he draws out here that's even more meaningful than that. He sees what has been proposed to him as an offense to God first and foremost. Now, last night in in the men's Bible study, as we were uh, in Hebrews chapter 10, we went to Psalm 51, and I want to go there again just real quickly, because David also saw his sin first and foremost as an affront to God. It's as if one would, as they entertain a sinful act, a transgression, an intentional sinful act, that they are doing it purposely to hurt God because it's without question an affront to God. And so David, having um, been confronted by the prophet Nathan over his sin with Bathsheba, he writes this psalm, a prayer of repentance, Psalm 51. And let me just read to you how it starts out. David writes, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. So there's his prayer. And now here comes the rationale. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me against you. You only have I sinned. And done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Now, in a real sense, well, not in a real sense, in the truest of senses, what he says there is true. When he says against you and you only, you might be wanting to argue with David. Hold on a second. Bathsheba might have something to say about that. Uriah, if he were still alive, might have something to say about that. The baby who lived for a few days and then the Lord took him back may have something to say about that. Didn't you sin against them? Yes, because God declared those actions to be wrong. See, without any kind of law, there's no knowledge of sin. 
you might say, that if God, the lawgiver, did not establish the righteousness of certain acts and the evil of other acts, why, then everything's open to do. I mean, without this is one of the great apologetic arguments that you can give somebody who doesn't believe in God. You say, well, apart from the law of North Carolina, apart from the law of the United States of America, do you think it's right or wrong to kill somebody who has done nothing wrong to you at all, just to go up and because you feel like it one day, kill them? 99.9% .9 of the population would say, that's terrible. That's definitely wrong. I said, okay, why is it wrong? Just wrong. It's terrible to... The... Right. Because there's an innate sense of law here. There is an innate sense that certain behaviors are acceptable and other behaviors are not. And if there is a law, whether it's written or implied, there must be a lawgiver. And that lawgiver is God. And so when David says, against you and you only have I sinned, you can argue on behalf of Bathsheba and all the others. But really, it's first a transgression against God because he has set the law. And I'm not just talking about the Mosaic law. I'm talking about the law that's written in our hearts, which is a, a, a conscience, a moral sense of right and wrong that comes from God. And, and, and Joseph recognizes this. Sometimes we don't recognize this. Sometimes when we're presented with a temptation, and it might be something that in your world is a particular weakness of yours. And maybe the enemy helps you rationalize what you're about to do by just sitting there with his arm around your shoulder and saying, look, dude, you know, you have to understand this is uniquely tempting for you. This is not something other people experience. Other people are not so vulnerable in this place. How could anyone really expect you to buck it up against this? <clears throat> False. The word of God has already uh, addressed that in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation, no temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. I mean, you can think of all the heroes of the Bible. Next men's Bible study, we're going to be coming soon to chapter 11 of, uh, of Hebrews, the, the hall of faith. And we're going to read about all these wonderful people that have come through the pages of Scripture well, the temptations that you and I experience are common to people, which includes them. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Now, you can imagine day, uh, Joseph being a prisoner in Potiphar's house. And by the way, his time in Potiphar's house was something like 11 years. I think he was 17 when he came into his house. And then... And then he was in prison for two years, but he's 30 when he ultimately is brought out and elevated by the king. So 11 years in Potiphar's house, we don't know how long this woman was hitting on him. We also don't know, but that because David was a slave, essentially, that maybe he didn't have uh, any kind of fellowship with a woman. Nowhere in scripture do we read about his wife, at least not while he's in Egypt. Um, so... He's, he's dealing with a, a temptation situation that, that could have been extremely hard on him. 
So it was, back to our text, verse 10, so it was as he spoke to Joseph, uh, as she spoke to Joseph day by day, so she's hitting on him every opportunity, that he did not heed her to lie with her or to be with her. But it happened about this time when Joseph went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was inside, that she caught him by his garment and said, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and ran outside. And so it was when she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and fled outside that she called to the men of her house and spoke to them saying, see, he has brought into us, she's referring now to her husband, he, my husband, has brought into us a Hebrew to mock us. He came into me to lie with me and I cried out with a loud voice. Now the very fact that she says it that way leads me to believe that there may be some people in Potiphar's house who are resentful of the fact that their boss is a Hebrew and, and has full sway of the house. And so it seems though Potiphar's wife is kind of playing on that sentiment. Verse 15, and it happened when he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out that he left his garment with me and fled and went outside. See, I have proof, she says. So she kept his garment with her until her, his master came home. Then she spoke to him with words like these, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you brought to us came into me to mock me. So it happened as I lifted my voice and cried out, which she never did, that he left his garment with me and fled outside. So it was when his master heard the words which his wife spoke to him, saying, Your servant did to me after this manner, that his anger was aroused. Then Joseph's master took him and put him in the prison a place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in the prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison committed to Joseph's hand all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever they did, whatever, uh, they did there, it was his doing. The keeper of the prison did not look into anything that was under Joseph's authority because the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made it prosper. Now, a couple of things we see in that, in that uh, sort of end to the episode. First of all, you might be wondering, as I am, why, upon the testimony of his wife and probably the other men of the household who said, yeah, yeah, she yelled, we came in, she was holding his coat. Why Potiphar didn't just kill him on the spot? First of all, he's the captain of the guard. He's kind of like the police chief. And now he's got... Good testimony, he would have thought, that this steward of his household was trying to horn in on his wife. I would almost submit that it would have been the practice of the day to execute him on the spot. He doesn't. Now, we don't know. It doesn't tell us here. For all we know, he's being held in prison for a, a, an execution date in the future. Doesn't say that. But here's my theory, and it's just a theory, not thus saith the Lord. I suspect that Potiphar at least had some doubts about the testimony of his wife. I think he knew the kind of woman she was. I don't suspect that Joseph was the first man she probably hit on because she just did it so boldly and so matter-of-factly and persistently that it kind of leads you to think that not only that, but historians will tell you that the Egyptian women of antiquity did have a little bit of a reputation. There was a little bit of laxness that was accepted about these women. And so my suspicion is that Potiphar had to show honor to his wife to punish this person she's accusing. 
but at the same time wanted to preserve Joseph. And we see that again, the hand of the Lord is preserving Joseph, is giving him an opportunity in the prison to now become the chief steward of the prison. And that becomes a very important position for him because it will be the, from that position that he ultimately will meet two other officers, the butler and the baker, of the king's household. And through knowing them, he will get the opportunity to get before the pharaoh. And so we leave it there. Um, but uh, Joseph, again, nobody's perfect, and he certainly wasn't. But of, of the people we encounter in Scripture, you can take more lessons from the way in which he handled his life than most of the other people we encounter, particularly in the line of Jacob. So with that, let's, uh, let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word, Lord, for the lessons it teaches us, for the history you've preserved, and Lord, for what it means in our hearts to know these things and to know your will, to know the heart and the mind of God. And Lord, we value that so highly. And we pray, Lord, that you would just help us to take it on board, to make it part of our life, to make it part of the moral compass by which we try to follow you each and every day, Lord. Lord, I thank you for meeting us here tonight. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Amen.